G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Robert Shaw. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is our grand final preview. The biggest week on the football calendar has arrived and we have a matchup for the ages. It is Geelong up against Sydney. No doubt the two best performed teams of 2022. The Cats having won 15 games straight. Sydney having won nine games straight. They're only meeting this season back in round two. A lot of water under the bridge since then, but it is going to be a ripper. We are here to preview it in full detail. As always, we are proudly brought to you by Palmerbet, where you get tackle-busting benefits all this AFL season. As I say, a very good morning to my Footyology podcast co-host, Mr. Robert Shaw, how are you, Shory? Uh, Rowan, we've got to this point, and um, by gee, uh, I'm looking forward to this. I'm really uh, looking forward to analysing it. I know we've got a significant uh, uh, breaking story to discuss in news, plus a, a, a number of other issues, so we'll get into that. But uh, um, what, what a wonderful game to preview, and uh, we can just take our time. We've got one game, and we can go through the... The positions, uh, the matchups, uh, the form, you'll have the injuries, you'll have the history. So um, I'm really looking forward to this. Well, we are going to drill right down on, on what should be a, a fascinating matchup. Two teams uh, whose paths and whose histories, indeed, over the whole AFL era uh, have been very, very similar, even right down to the two coaches. And we'll discuss that in due course. But as Robert just alluded to, there is plenty of news, including, uh, quite frankly, an incredible and incredibly disturbing story, which we need to talk about. Time to do that right now. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, a lot on the agenda in grand final week, but, uh, well, as we record this, and I stress we are talking about this story not long after it has been broken, but an absolute bombshell dropped on AFL football, and uh, it has come via Russell Jackson, who you've heard us talk about previously, uh, Russell Jackson, one of the leading Journalists in the country, in my view, works for the ABC. He has written some incredible exposés, probably best said about the dark underbelly of sport in recent times. Uh, and this one arguably uh, tops them all. And basically, if you're not across this, and I recommend very strongly that you do read this, uh, it is that an external review commissioned by the Hawthorne Football Club will reveal allegations of key figures at the club. And we are talking about coaches, uh, Alistair Clarkson and Chris Fagan, who worked then at the club as football manager. 
and welfare manager Jason Burt, among others, demanded the separation of young First Nations players from their partners and pressured one couple to terminate a pregnancy for the sake of the player's career. This amazing story uh, basically focuses around three case studies, all who have uh, spoken to Russell um, at length, and these are the sorts of things documented by the report. Now, um, other important things to note here, the review was handed to Hawthorne Senior Management two weeks ago, and is now with the AFL Integrity Unit. Now, uh, those two bodies hadn't said any detail about the report, but now that the ABC has aired these allegations, have come out with statements this morning. Uh, as you'd expect, these statements are contrite and talk about uh, improving welfare programs and education, but... I think it's going to go a lot further than that. Already, as we speak, uh, mainstream media, a la the Herald Sun and The Age, 3AW, you name it, uh, reacting to this. And uh, the reaction has been, as you'd expect, when you read this story, and I should say too here that there are real trigger warnings on this story for people uh, who have dealt with pregnancy loss, self-harm, uh, Indigenous peoples, intergenerational trauma. I mean, we are talking about some absolutely sickening allegations about uh, young Indigenous recruits being pressured to leave relationships to uh, coerce their partners into terminations of pregnancies, into families being left unsupported and on their own. Um, all in order to make sure these young men were concentrating on their football and not their families. It is absolutely sickening stuff. Um, the upshot, like I said, it's gonna, it is is already savage. Basically, people already are saying that uh, Alistair Clarkson and Chris Fagan, to name two, cannot continue to work in the AFL. And, uh, you know, if that is followed through we're talking about two afl coaches and successful coaches and one who has just been appointed to a new club uh being basically drummed out of the game it, it, it's an incredible amount to digest i'm still having trouble getting my head around it um but only fair that i ask you rob for your oh. reaction to this incredible story I've um, never seen anything like it. I don't think, Rowan, uh, you're the professional journalism for 40 years. Um, you know, I'll handball back to you, but uh, I was staggered. I read it through um, sleepy eyes early this morning before I set up to talk to you. Um, uh, I am I am shocked, staggered, and um, you're right, some, some contrite... Uh, words about will be better and um, but but it's interesting firstly let me just say this I've uh, I know Russell Jackson he's written uh, he won a one of the top awards for his um, for his piece on uh, Robbie Muir who we yeah. both know well Rowan and I've played against Robbie and you've written about him um, that was a, a brilliant he's a brilliant journalist investigative but also a passionate writer so um, if he writes something, I read it, and I couldn't believe what I'm reading. It has gone to the AFL Integrity Department. So I hope this is um, 
and of course the Age and the Herald Sun and and the nation's press will run with this in the week of the grand final. I have to ask this: it's um, it's come out in the week of the grand final. Rowan, is that uh, should we read something into that also? Um, well, no, not necessarily because I think Russ wouldn't have any sort of you know agenda about I'm going to get this out at this time so it gets maximum publicity. I mean, you guaranteed that whenever this was written, it would have attracted enormous amounts of attention. But just to back up what you're saying, I mean, already, and we are recording this literally, you yeah. know, a couple, a couple of hours after this story has been released, um, you know, already we, we've got the federal government uh, buying into it and being asked for comments. So, um, you know, this is massive and, and this is going to, I guess, in effect, sort of hijack attention from the grand final but we can't we can't be whinging about that because i mean some things are just too important to overlook or, or conveniently sweep to one side and and this certainly won't be just to give you a bit more detail and again i urge everyone you know don't just take our word for it you need to read this story and it's on the abc website website um i i also would urge people not to read the uh, well, no, sorry, not not to read it, but if you want the fullest account of this story, don't read uh, what the Herald Sun and the Age, etc., writing about it. Go to the original source, which is the ABC, and if you go to the ABC website, you will find Russell Jackson's story there. It is very long and it takes uh, quite a while to read. But look, just some other elements of this: um, Hawthorne had more than twenty uh, Indigenous players during the period of the review three families have spoken to the abc about incidents in which club staff allegedly bullied and removed first nations players from their homes and relocated them elsewhere telling them to choose between their careers and their families in some cases coaches allegedly coerced at least two players to remove sim cards from their phones and insert new ones in attempts to cut them off from their partners and focus them entirely on the club's pursuit of football success. In each case, the player was a young First Nations draftee in his first five years with the club. But the gravest accusations relate to the alleged intimidation tactics to separate couples at the earliest stages of pregnancies and parenthood, and the alleged demand that one player should instruct his partner to terminate a pregnancy. Actions the families say created multi-generational traumas i mean etc etc two of the families affected have recently been provided with mental health assistance from the aflpa due to suicide risks associated with reliving their traumas for the sake of the review and there is frustration among the families that hawthorne has only offered them assistance since becoming aware of abc's investigation the club's made no public comment on the findings despite being in receipt of the allegations for weeks. Well, they have this morning, as I said. But again, and this is sort of reminiscent of the uh, reporting around Collingwood's racism report, these things, clubs and, and the AFL in this case, you know, tried desperately to suppress these things until a media organisation blows the whistle on it. Now, when we talk about the media playing an important role and people go, oh, yeah, well, you know, gee, look at the media and how bad it is. And I do that as much as anyone. But it's times like these when the media actually does 
play an incredibly valuable valuable role in society and bringing these things to light. And can I just say, already at this stage, uh, absolute kudos to Russell Jackson. And and thank God the world of media still has practitioners like him. Incredible story. I, I just don't know where to go with this, frankly, Rob. But I'll, I'll ask you, look, I don't want to put you on the spot. I realise it's a difficult one to answer. But, you know, if these allegations are substantiated, and I've got to say, even getting to this stage, it appears pretty likely that they they would be. Can Alistair Clarkson and Chris Fagan stay in the game? This is going to be very difficult because of uh, the results that will come out of the AFL Integrity Report that we hope is transparent and open. Um, And, yeah, full credit to the ABC and to Russell Jackson. I think you've summarised that very, very well. And... um, I have a personal bias or a friendship with Chris Fagan that has gone over since our Tasmanian days 40 years ago and a professional association with Alistair Clarkson over the same time. Um, I'm not qualified to comment on that. I don't have the full facts in front of me, but on face value, this is going to be one of the biggest stories um, that I can remember. And on face value, I can't see them getting getting through this Rowan, both pre- professionally and personally, uh, given given the extremities of the allegations um, uh, as provided by the ABC. So, look, it, did I sound like I'm sitting on the fence? I am cautious because I'm not qualified to research and I'm, I read like the person in the grandstand. It's going to be extremely difficult to um, to survive this. And I find that very difficult to say, but on the other side of me, my association with some of the the greatest Indigenous people, or no, I won't say Indigenous, some of the greatest people I have met, um, um, uh, the Riolis and the Longs and all that, is um, I I, I can, I, I, I support that. So... Yeah, I'm a bit all over the place with this, Rowan, and I'll be first to say it because it is a, a it staggered me this morning. I yeah. didn't believe this that sort of thing could happen. And and um Gil McLaughlin in his last year as CEO, his last grand final, there will be no discussion, no questioning about oh, who do you think will win? Who'll win the Norm Smith medal? It is saturation from here on in, isn't yeah. it? Yep. Anyway, yep. Yep. I, I, I apologise, folks, if I blundered my way through that. Uh, I have no personal bias other than my connection with these people. I'm more staggered with the um, with, with with the story, uh, and um, uh, hopefully the AFL Integrity people can uh, can deal with it appropriately. Well, let me let me say this on 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 a on a broader scale. You know, there's a lot of people who like to say, oh, there's no racism in this country and, you know, we're past all that and, you know, people make a, a big deal of it and they talk about the, the black armband view of history, et cetera, et cetera. But it's when you come across stories like this, you realise how deeply ingrained uh, this country has a, a racist streak. And it's it's really uncomfortable to talk about. But the fact that, something like that can happen, even in people who we've had respect for, who this, what is it, this paternalistic attitude towards Indigenous people and Indigenous culture, the treating of them like children 
the absolute contempt and disrespect for their culture and and their family, um, their importance on of, of family, and when that is so deeply ingrained in in respected institutions like football and the sporting landscape, you just think, well, I'm sorry, we we are a deeply racist country, and it's really uncomfortable for us to confront. And every time it comes up, we squirm and wriggle and try to sort of duck out of it, but the fact that the, the, these sort of things are still happening in this day and age, it just, it's, it's just staggering and it defies belief. And hopefully um, whatever happens with this story, that it encourages people like us who like to think we, we have progressive views to keep thinking about just, you know, how big an issue this is and how much work this country still has to do before we can say we have anything like an appropriate relationship with um our Indigenous and First Nations people. Um, let, let's just leave it there because there's plenty more to talk about, but disturbing stuff. And I, I, you know, encourage everyone to make sure you read that story. All right. Um, we need to talk about the Brownlow Medal just quickly, but uh, it's, it is a fairly important award, Rob. Um, Patrick Cripps, uh, pretty popular winner, not universally popular, but that's only because of the controversy about the overturning of that two-game suspension he'd received for the contact with Brisbane's Calamar Chi. Uh, what's your take? Uh, an incredible count, by the way, one of the most exciting counts we've seen for a long time. What do you make of all that? Yeah, I was um, uh, the emotional favourite for me. I think we discussed this. I was uh, really had the fingers crossed for Took Miller. I thought that would have been a wonderful story. Yeah. Uh, not that Paddy Cripps isn't a wonderful story. So... Um, uh, I was uh, coming down the Flemington Strait on uh, yeah, with Took Miller, you know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, he got caught at the clock tower. Um, Cripps, we debated this, Rowan. I think thinking back was uh, I was um, I erred on the side of um, leniency with the Cripps report. I think you might have been the other way. There was head high contact, there was shoulder contact, but was it in the art of um, his hands were his arms were cupped? to take a chess mark, he leapt in the All those sort of things sorted them out. So I can understand uh, the mixed reaction, but I fully support Paddy Cripps as a Brownlow medalist for uh, 2022. You know, I, I feel like this one a bit the way, uh, no, I, I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm trying to think of an analogy and I can't. But, I mean, the problem here is, and don't get me wrong, I'm happy for him to win it. Um, you know, the decision played out as it did, and given that, I, I think fine, good on you. You you win it, well deserved. Um, yeah, and you, you know he couldn't deny that over the course of his career he he deserves this award. But the, the prop the difficulty is that in the end the decision was overturned not on the basis of what happened in the incident, but on the basis of legal procedural logistics, and that means that basically. Um, uh, a suspension that may have been merited has been overturned on a technicality. Now, yep. does that let me stress here? I don't think that compromises the Brownlow Medal. We've seen these sorts of situations arise before, where players have been deemed lucky to have got off this or that charge. So it, it does create a bit of a problem in terms of how the AFL first structures its tribunal system because, you know, if a, if the MRO can arrive at a two-game suspension, then upheld by the tribunal and then overturned on appeal 
due to uh, you know a, a logistical issue, um, I think we've got a problem, don't we? Oh well, well, it'll always be argued on when it gets that far, Rowan. It'll always be argued on legal precedent, won't it? And technicality and wording. Yeah. And, and you're quite right. Um, he has oh, escaped. Um, yeah. Oh, it, it it went through so many procedures. In the end, he was able to play because of uh, what you said about a legal procedure, wording, uh, a technical. Um, so I, I don't want to take anything away from a thoroughly deserved winner um, in a great year for him. So, mm, mm. Uh, anyway. Okay. You had enough, <laughs> You've had enough of that one? Well, um, I sort of have. Um yeah, I argued strongly that was initially before the two weeks was handed out. I think I went with there was enough doubt to say that he was attacking the ball, and then it went on and on and on from there. So um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but interesting, Rowan. Um, you know, we still we still go back. Uh, you know, the um, the midfielders medal. You know, we go back to Wanganeen in 93, Scotty Wine won in 92, Jim Steins in 91. Before that, during the 80s, we had the Lockett, Brad Hardy, Peter Moore, Barry Round, Templeton, Glenn Denning, Blight, Teasdale, Moss and Dempsey. Mm. So it was a bit more flexibility of um, or opportunity for we didn't have a key defender. I think did Brad Hardy win in the back pocket, Rowan, or was he, he further up the ground? No, no, his back pocket. He definitely won the back pocket. But no, you're right. I mean, it used to be it used to be a lot of ruckmen. There used to be a lot of small defenders and the occasional key defender uh, or key forward, a la Ross Glendinning in 1983. Yeah. But yeah, since Wanganeen, I mean, we've had basically close to 30 years or just on. 30 years of, of midfielders winning it. Now, why has that happened? Well, the game's become a higher possession game. The midfielders rack up more touches. Um, uh, their roles tend to, uh, I, I guess, they bob up all over the ground now. Um, but it's, you, I must admit, I I think, you know, like if you're a, a champion defender or even a champion key forward, you're just not going to win it. So it, it, it's restricting <laughs> the restricting the award to a, and it's a big section of players because that that's the other thing, you know, a, a large proportion of a side now are basically on ballers. Um, but it means that there's a significant amount of players who are never going to win the Brownlow. Can we change the voting system whereby, uh, you know, set position players get a, a higher ratio of. I, I don't think he can. I don't think he can, and and that is a problem. But you know, the the award is quite unique in the way it's voted on by the games officials anyway. So I guess, um, you know, it just gives it another point of uh, uniqueness. But uh, unfortunately, it's not necessarily a, a good one. I think um, you certainly want a diversity of players being eligible to win, don't you? And the other thing is uh, the umpires aren't privy to uh, pre-game planning. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I think we've raised the point of uh, Taylor from GWS taking, might have been Hawkins to the cleaners last year or, or even this year. Those sort of plannings, um, Ryan Clark's never going to get a vote because he um, he restricted uh, Dacos in a final Oh yeah, well, obviously, I'm, I'm just using these scenarios, Rowan. The in-house planning that are critical to winning the game, um, 
uh, won't won't get a look in. So if a fullback does a magnificent job like Lockett won it because obviously um, he's a he's a premier act at full forward. So they're not going to win it. The fullbacks aren't going to win it. Uh, Fred, we're not going to have a Freddie Goldsmith again, are we? Or or Ross Glendinning? What was he? Rowan centre half back. Uh, centre-half back, they used to occasionally... Oh, no, in fact, the year he won it, he was actually just centre-half back, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, it is what it is. And and don't forget, the umpires, the way they position themselves, Rowan, this might sound a bit strange, but they've got their back to the boundary and they're looking inward all the yeah. time. Yeah. So their vision is, is absolutely centralised to the possession winners in the middle of the ground. That's their yeah. positioning. So Clayton Oliver is always going to be in an umpire. That's all they're going to see. Yeah. No, no, I think that's a good point. And that's, uh, I mean, if you want to go back to, say, Greg Williams winning his first Brownlow, which was 1986, I mean, that's a long time ago, but it, it sort of gives you an insight into umpires then were able to see a lot of those lightning quick little handballs he did that maybe people on the outside weren't privy to. So... I'd almost argue 30 years ago, umpires being the judges of the award were ahead of the curve because they were seeing a lot of that little subtle stuff that midfielders were doing. But now, given the glut of midfielders and the amount of times the ball is locked in tight and has to be got out to the outside, maybe it's a bit of a handicap. Anyway, it's just a, a quirk of our game. It's uh, it's a massive night. And um Look, it was a it was a thrilling count. Congratulations to all the players that finished uh, near the top, and um, particularly to Patrick Cripps, uh, which at least gave Carlton something out of this year after that heartbreaking end to it uh, from their perspective. Also on awards, and we don't want to undersell this one because it's a massive one. Uh, Craig McRae announced as the AFL Coaches Association. Coach of the Year, uh, narrowly winning that ahead of the two grand final coaches, John Longmire and Chris Scott. Um, but I I am pretty happy with that. I think uh, it's been an incredible rise by Collingwood from 17th to within a couple of points of a grand final appearance. So uh, well done, Craig McRae. I think it's only the fifth time a first-year coach has won the award. Well, wow. so hats off to him. It's a, a massive win. Your response to that one? Yes, yes, I'm I'm there. I always thought you know the coach of the year, coach the premiership, but um, it's across the across the season a remarkable coaching performance, a remarkable team, and thoroughly deserved by Craig McRae. Um, I not they don't need me to support it, but yeah, if I was asked who's the coach of the year, it would be Craig McRae. Yeah, I, I would agree. What do you think? I mean, from outside, we're not privy to his uh, work inside the club with the players, but from as a former coach yourself, when you look at how they play and, and you, you listen to Craig McRae, what do you think is the most impressive thing about him as a coach? Um, the people that he's brought with him and the way he set up his panel. And and I, I don't want to get on to... Uh, um, how Essendon left Ben Rutten on an island by himself and he expected a first-year coach to mm. coach um, a, a powerful club, a big club like the Essendon Football Club. But if you put uh, an experienced coach, uh, um, Brendan Bolton, you get uh, Leopard, who's also coached AFL, um, and you surround a first-year coach with these sort of people. It, it To me, uh, McCraig, fantastic. 
but this was about the coaching structure and the coaching team and their relationship with their players. Mm. Yeah, no, no, well, well said. And, um, Fantastic debut year by him and Collingwood, of course, with much to look forward to after going so close. Coming from second last on the ladder, it's still hard to believe that. And an amazing rise by the Collingwood Football Club this year, of course. Uh, just on right- that, Rowan, sorry, mate, just quickly. What, why isn't Justin Lepage being interviewed for the Essendon job? Is there any, and I'm serious, did he not want to do it? Uh, have I read that somewhere or wasn't he just not selected as part of the process, given he's very much followed. Um, uh, a Voss went back, done the hard yards, ready to go again. He may not want to have done it, Rowan. I've, I've, uh, it's just interesting, that's all. I haven't seen a comment attributed to him either way on that, but, uh, I mean, if he is open to it, it's an absolutely valid question. I mean, I, I guess they might argue, well, if he was interested, he'd apply, but they have sussed out other people about their interests, so... Yeah. Um, seeing, okay. you, seeing you bring it up, uh, I know you did have a, a couple of things you wanted to say about the Essendon, uh, Essendon coach search and where that's at. Uh, it's gone a bit quiet. No one seems to know too much about what's going on. One by one, some of the leading contenders have been eliminating themselves. But of course, the uh, I don't want to say spectre, but uh, one name in particular, James Hurd, continues to um, loom large in this whole question. What, how have you seen developments there over the last week or so? Well, I'm delighted that at the, uh, um, at the same time, the CEO search is going on, the external reviews going on and the coaching process. So it's a very, very big time at, at Essendon. I certainly support Matthew Lloyd on Footy Classifieds, who said he's just delighted with the process. And if James Heard happened to come out the other side of this process as, as the, the coach, then, then uh, full credit. But uh, certainly um, it has raised uh, a polarisation in the community and certainly in the Essendon community. I, 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 you and I argue and debate enough for people to know that uh, um, I'm, I don't support you on everything. I, I can't see how you can't write an article, Rowan, and said, I don't think James Hurd should coach because he hasn't coached for seven years and there's far more people to look at, like the McRae's, like the Uzo's, that are constantly in in the coaching sphere. Mm. Um, I, I, and I'm not supporting you in one way, shape or form. I can't understand the vitriol and the stupidity that has come your way for a very simple statement. Um, I, I, my first choice, I think we discussed, was Ross, uh, the Ross Line type. Hard, non-negotiable, uh, defensively minded, tough. Uh, I, I thought that's what Essendon needed, uh, following mm. on from the from the style of Worsfold and Rutten. Um, do you handcuff me and send me off to jail because I didn't bow down to the appointment of James Hurd? No, I'm open-minded. My second choice was Dean Solomon with Mark Williams. So... Mm. I'm, uh, you know, handcuff me, send me off to jail, uh, James Heard people, because, um, and if he comes out, as I said in a speaking engagement down in Tasmania, if he he got the job and he rang me and he said, mate, I need your support, I will stand side by side with him in the trench, uh, unequivocally, Rowan, but I'm uh, I'm allowed to have an opinion. Yeah, well... I mean, my, my job is to have an yeah. opinion. Um, I, I, anyway. Okay, so I just want to say quickly on that. So if, if people are not across this, I did write a, a column 
uh, last week uh, why I thought that James Hurd shouldn't be given that opportunity to coach Essendon again. Now, I, I, I did say this, and people read what they want to read, but I did say if the process threw him up as the preferred candidate, fine, fine. Exactly. With, with me. I, all yeah. I did was write an opinion as to why I didn't think they could uh, say he was a recommended candidate, given that he's been out of the system for seven years and he's up against highly qualified, you know, former senior coaches or highly qualified assistant coaches who've been involved week in, week out for a decade. How can you possibly um, come up with the former option ahead of the latter option in that scenario unless the guy in the former option is a a triple premiership coach or something which james isn't uh, you know i mean the 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 bottom line is his win loss percentage is slightly below 50% now there are complications to that uh, i understand he's a you know the aura around him that he he may have the greatest relationships with players in the history of coaching but Uh, that's not necessarily an impression I get. And that doesn't mean I don't think he couldn't be a really good coach. I just don't think he could possibly be a better qualified candidate than others. Anyway, that's the... Anyway. That's it. No, well, I just want to say, that's the gist of what I wrote. There was nothing personal about it. Um, And I've had a number of, you know, I mean, annoying people sort of suggest that I have an agenda that someone's leaking stuff to me. I don't know how you leak an opinion, really, to be honest. Um, and All right. It, yep. It's, it's been uh, – no, don't hurry me up, Robert. I want to say this. It's been, yeah. it's been, quite, uh, it's been quite ridiculous, to be honest. And it, it actually – all that does, all that sort of reaction does is make me think this is a, a good demonstration, again, of the sort of cultural issues that Essendon's had, that they'd – they're just determined to find saviors all the time. And some people seem more intent on offering James Hurd the chance of redemption than what is good for the club. And I can assure you that will never be me. The club is always more important than the individual. There also is an argument, and this is harsh, but I, I sort of can see some merit in the argument that, you know, if James Hurd really loved the Essendon Football Club, as much as we all believe he does, wouldn't the most selfless thing to do have been not put his hand up, knowing the sort of circus that would eventuate around that? No, I see it the other way. Which is what? Uh, Yeah, put your hand up. Be prepared to go through the process. Um, Make your mind up. I want to coach this team. I want to bring this team back. Um, he's got no doubt the, uh, the the technical and the personal attributes to um, uh, to coach successfully. He's great with younger players. He has a great feeling with the game, and he's a great relationship builder. That that's his strength. So that's fantastic for me. If he's prepared to go through, and at the end of the day, Rowan, this comes down to finally, which has been uh, on our agenda for years. Finally, we have a a process. Not not governed by the whim of a CEO or a or a small cartel within the Essendon Football Club that does what they want to do. It's it's the right process to follow. And if James can win this, as I said, he has my full support. All right, that that um, I mean that's the important point. That that is more important than actually who ends up being appointed. Absolutely. Which well, it sounds silly, but in okay, I'm just going to put you on the spot here. Just what a one word answer or two words right now. Who would you, knowing what we know, who would you have coaching the club? 
Uh, I haven't got the info. Um, who have we got? Uh, Laid, Gia, No, Solomon, Heard. Who else is in that, Rowan? Well, uh, let's throw Brad Scott in there as well. I've always said Solomon and Mark Williams. All right. Well, right now, just for for what it's worth, um, I've been I've been pretty impressed with what I'm hearing about Adam Uze. Uh, I think though, and I, I wasn't convinced he was at all interested, and he may still not be. I think if Brad Scott is available and interested, I'd be inclined to go with him. I think his record as North Melbourne coach is really, really impressive. I think uh, to get that list to two preliminary finals was remarkable, really. So, okay. But- the, the other side to that is Ferrito, Tarrant, Thompson, uh, Harvey. Um, he had a core of senior, experienced players that drove the old Shinbana standard, right? Yeah. That, yeah. That, they had a fantastic core of senior players. When they left, he dropped off immediately. This is a very different scenario. This is the second youngest team in the competition. Um, is is Brad a rebuilder? Or does he come in under the line sort of style of, okay, you give me a good team and I'll get it to a grand final or I'll get it to a preliminary final. Um, they fell away very, very quickly north once those core players uh, retired or were moved on. Okay, no, it's a fair point. Interesting observation. All right, we've got to move on here. We yeah. do have a grand final preview, but just quickly, <laughs> um, can't ignore this one either. A lot of delistings and and trade rumors coming up, but this uh, unfolding situation as strikes me as a bit odd, and that is this sort of looming exodus from Fremantle, which yeah. has just had the best. Now let's just run through the latest. So now Fremantle ruckman Lloyd Meek is keen to get to Hawthorne. Uh, Darcy Tucker has announced he wants to go right. to North Melbourne. Uh, Griffin Logue has talked about wanting out. Um, where's he want to go? I think he nominated uh, North Melbourne North. as well. Blake Akers has asked to be traded to Carlton. Rory Wobb had already requested a trade to Western Bulldogs. What, what's going on here? This side made the finals and their future is really bright. Why do all these players want out? Just go through that. So we've got Lobb. Ruckman forward, Meeks, Ruckman support, Logue, uh, versatile either end of the ground, Akers, very good wingman, midfielder. Well, who was the fifth one, Ron? Uh, Darcy uh, Tucker. Darcy Tucker, right? Yeah. Um, Lob important, Meeks, depth player, Logue important, Akers important. So you've got three, as I said, you've got three very important players there and a, a couple of... Uh, players that are looking for other opportunities, that's fine. With Jackson coming in and and um, big Sean Darcy there, there's not a spot for Meek, so he's looking for an opportunity. So I'll give that a tick. But Akers, Logue and Lobb, um, Lobb's, what, three clubs in nine years, Rowan? Yeah. Going to going to Footscray where there's Darcy, English, um, Norton, uh, Bruce, these sort of players. Yeah, look, I, I've been to Fremantle, one, one of the great football towns, the great football town, South yeah. Fremantle, East Fremantle, historical. It's a wonderful place to play football. So I'm slightly confused with that, Ron, because it came pretty quick at these exit meetings, didn't it? And they're out. 
Yeah, it's it's just unusual for a club that's had that good a season. All right, last one on the news agenda before we get to our grand final preview, and I'm going to give you like 60 seconds here to say what yeah. you like. Uh, latest developments on the Tasmanian AFL team. Go. Yeah, fantastic. $1.3 billion into uh, the Tasmanian economy over the next 10 years, 10 to 12 years. Um, doesn't include the direct e- economic impact of building it. Over a 1,000 jobs, infrastructure, which will lead to a variety. People think, oh, to play six games of AFL football. No, it's going to be a wonderful cultural centre on, on the port of Hobart. Uh, they're going to have um, uh, cricket, Bledisloe Cup, rugby league, rugby union, um, the round ball game, World Cup soccer, um, etc. And then, of course, Australian rules football. So folks don't get the saying, oh, they're going to build it for our course. Of course, it's important for that. But this is going to be a wonderful addition to the Tasmanian landscape situated at Macquarie Point. This is big picture stuff, folks. This is jobs, infrastructure, tourism. This is a whole package. And we also have our own team that will be playing out of the stadium. And mind I say, a revamped and redeveloped York Park in Launceston. So you've probably got six games here and five in Launceston. This is big picture. This is cultural. This is about bringing people to Tasmania. All right, and one word answer. Uh, what is your tip for what year the team actually begins playing AFL football? Uh, two, three, four, five. Round one, 2006. 2006? Yeah. That was 16 years ago. Uh, uh, 26, sorry. So, yeah. 2026. Yeah, yeah, four years. Give okay. us four years. All right. Uh, so all right. much work to be done. Yep. Okay. Um, all right. That was a fairly succinct summary of where we're at. That is a pretty crowded news agenda. Oh, but gee. believe it or not, after all that, there is the most important game of the football year to be played. We've got a comprehensive preview to do of it, and it is time we did that right now. On Footyology, previews with Punch. The 2022 AFL Grand Final Saturday afternoon. And don't I love saying Saturday afternoon for a Grand Final at the MCG, 2.30pm. Uh, back we're back at the home of footy for the first time since 2019. It is going to be a cracker between Geelong and Sydney. First time the Cats and Swans have met in a grand final in 126 years that they have both been members of either the VFL or AFL. And for those pedants saying, well, Sydney hasn't in their guise as the Swans, as you know very well, I mean. Palmerbet, where you get tackle-busting benefits all AFL season, thanks to Palmerbet. And, of course, we're eternally grateful for Palmerbet's wonderful support of the Footyology podcast. Always remember to gamble responsibly. The head-to-head odds on the most important game of the year has Geelong uh, a comfortable, not not scorching hot, but a comfortable favourite. The Cats paying $1.51. Sydney head-to-head paying $2.56. Uh, some numbers on this particular matchup. The Cats have won 15 games in a row. Their last loss was back in round nine against St Kilda. 
the Swans. They've won nine games in a row. Their last loss was round 16 against Essendon at the MCG. Uh, Geelong's matchups against Sydney. The Swans have won the last two, that last one in round two earlier this season by 30 points. Geelong won four of those meetings prior to that. The last seven clashes between these two teams, none have been decided by any more than 30 points. What about the venue? The MCG, well, Geelong has won 10 of its last 11 games at the MCG. Their only loss there in that time by 12 points against Hawthorne. Sydney, their record at the MCG is also pretty good. They have won seven of their last 10 games there going back to 2018. Their record there, they've played there three times this year. And their record there this year is 2-1, beat Melbourne twice and lost to Essendon. Your initial thoughts on the most important game of the year, Robert? Well, it is uh, incredibly exciting to see this game. And you've got, um, my, my I say, I think you've got a, a clash of contrasting styles of uh, preparation. I think that John Longmire will really go to town. He likes his opposition analysis. He likes allocating players to players. He likes the uh, Ryan Clark matchup as a defensive forward. We'll talk about that. He'll use his very good players, Mills and um, Parker, to run with while Chris Scott will back his system. All right. Uh, let's talk about that round two meeting because that is the exposed form we have to work with. Of course, that was the famous evening. Buddy Franklin kicked his 1,000th goal, but it was also a really impressive win to Sydney by 30 points, the final scores in that game, 17-5-107, defeating Geelong 10-17-77. The goals that evening, Isaac Heaney kicked five, played a wonderful game. Buddy kicked four, Hayward three, Golden two, singles the rest, and just a one-multiple goal kicker for the Cats, and that was Brad Close who kicked for goals. Interestingly, in that game, um, the inside 50 count, 47 to 65. So Geelong had 18 more inside 50 entries and yet lost the game by 30 points. And I think you can assume from their uh, conversion, a big part of a story that evening and that scoreline. Again, 10-17, the Cats, very inaccurate and an incredibly accurate Sydney, 17-5. So 22 scores to 27. Geelong that evening, having five more scores. Uh, we're going to run through the grand final preview um, area by area, but just before you get us underway on that score, Rob, the all-important injury news. Now, there is one player in serious doubt for either side for Geelong. It's my boy, Maxie Holmes. Let's all cross our fingers. He gets up for a thoroughly deserved grand final appearance. Um, hamstring injury, it looked initially to be season-ending, but scans not as bad as first feared, uh, indicating neural damage rather than a tissue tear. He completed a running session with his teammates on Monday. Uh, Geelong will give him every last chance to prove his fitness for the game. Look, if he doesn't come up, there's very, very good replacement uh, or replacements in the wings, but you suspect uh, it would be Brandon Parfitt who got the nod. Sydney's injury issue is key forward Sam Reid, who has a strained adductor. Uh, there's going to be plenty of attention on him. 
Um, again, he's going to be given every opportunity required to get to the line and structurally pretty important to the Swans as well. Really takes a bit of the pressure off Buddy Franklin and to a lesser extent, Logan McDonald. So there are your fitness concerns. Either player would be uh, structurally important to their side. But let's start with this preview, Robert. Uh, we'll work our way down the ground. Let's start by talking about the Geelong defence as opposed to the Sydney forward line. How do you see that? Well, as you said, you've got Heaney and Franklin kicking nine goals against them last time. I think the key to this will be how uh, Geelong used Tom Stewart. He's obviously not going to go and play on Buddy Franklin. They want to keep him away from Reed. Um uh, they will not have him on Heaney. So once again, uh, the key to this Geelong back line, given the fact that they've got Tui, DeConning, Buse, Stuart, Henry, Collardashny, Zach Guthrie can go back there and Mitch Duncan. They're up against the likes of Papley, Franklin, uh, McDonald, Reed, and Heaney. I'm assuming Reed plays Rowan just for the sake of our um, our matchups and assessment because I feel if he doesn't play, uh that's a significant loss more than Holmes's loss for Geelong. Um, I think Bues will go to Heaney. DeConning on Franklin. It's a no for me, Rowan. I think mm. he's more suited to full back and yep. read. Let him settle in there because I think both clubs have got very, very mobile, strong, quick left footers in Franklin and, of course, Jeremy Cameron. So let's just spell this out. Who do you have opposed to Buddy Franklin? Uh, it's a great question. And both clubs have problems with these two blokes. Um, uh, can Stuart go? Uh, uh, can young Henry do a do a, a, a run-with job with Lance Franklin? And at the other end of the ground, we'll get on to it, who's going to play on Jeremy Cameron? Not neither of the McCartans have the aerobic capacity to do it. Well, we'll get down to that area later. But I think I, it's a real problem. Franklin's I, a problem for the matchup. Okay. Well, you're in the box. You've got 10 seconds until we bounce down. You need an opponent for Buddy Franklin. Who I'm, is it? I'm going who he, where he lines up. If he's full forward and stays at full forward, that's DeConning. If he's up around the ground where he'll play, Henry has to go with him because I don't think they want Stewart. Um, and Buse is not big enough. Collardashny and Toy Tui have got other roles to play. That's an issue. Okay, so we, we talked last week about how Geelong manipulate their uh, matchups to get Reece Stanley as the spare man in defence and to free up Tom Stewart, etc., to rebound. Now, uh, the proof of the pudding was in the preliminary final where their defenders, Collardashny and Stewart and Tui, racked up some serious disposal numbers. So that um, is perhaps the main reason why it's so important for the Swans that Reed plays, isn't it? Because if he doesn't, that's going to give Geelong far more license to be able to rebound and attack and create off half back. It's the key to the game, Rowan. And as Chris Fagan, he couldn't do it. He basically said, I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't yeah. work it out. He said they managed to intercept our entries. It was always seven against six, Rowan. And this holds the key. How do you control Tom Stewart? How do you make him accountable? And I've got, can Ryan Clark is 186 and 83. Tom Stewart is 190 and 88. There's a significant size difference. Ryan Clark's not great in the air. 
Tom Stewart is great in the air. Um, can Ryan Clark do that job? I, I, I don't think he can. Um, Eric Goulden can't. Logan Mac, uh, Young McDonald's very young. Uh, gee, mate, this is intriguing. And I'm quite comfortable to say I haven't got the answers, but I got the issues for you. And mm. there are issues for both these clubs. And I'm, I'm absolutely so looking forward to Longmire's capacity to plan for the opposition. That's his strength. And mm. what he does with Stewart can hold the key to this grand final. Yeah, well, we, we know how good Geelong's defence is statistically uh, third in the league for fewest points conceded, Sydney fourth for what it's worth. Um, also, the other flip that over, Geelong third for points scored, Sydney uh, fourth for points scored. So they are incredibly evenly matched, these two sides in many respects. But as you've just uh, demonstrated wonderfully well, um, the Geelong defence, almost the key to this game. Having said that, Let's move on to the midfield matchups because most games, let's be honest, most games are generally determined by which side wins the midfield battle. And in in that round two win, uh, it was Sydney's midfielders who were absolutely dominant among the best players on the ground. Mills probably vying with Heaney for BOG honours that evening. Goulden was particularly good. Uh, Warner was particularly good. Even uh, a lesser light like Dylan Stevens and the Geelong midfielders, in contrast, really had a quiet night. So, uh, getting hands on the footy is going to be crucial. Also, in that round two game, the contested ball was a break even stat. They actually both had 119 contested disposals. Sydney won this midfield battle on the outside, where they ended up with 36 more uncontested possessions than Geelong. What are the key midfield matchups as you see them? Just very quickly, Rowan, just to summarise, it's the Geelong back line has a tick over the Sydney forward line. So that's 1-0 to Geelong at the yeah. moment. In yeah. the midfield, you'll go with Stanley and Blixarves. He's not going to change that. The only thing he can do is because of Lance's running capacity, a consideration of Blixarves back to Franklin. Yeah. So that that's an option. But it's Stanley, Blixarve, Dangerfield, Atkins, Duncan, Cameron Guthrie and Isaac Smith up against Hickey. Gee, what a wonderful final series so far. Mills, Rowbottom, McInerney, Papley goes through the midfield. Warner's been terrific and, and Parker strong. And don't forget Dylan Stevens. Not a big possession winner, Rowan, but a really competent wingman. I think a really important player in this game, and and he still, despite how well he's playing, he's still underrated. Is James Rowbottom? Like he he's a really important player for Sydney. Callum Mills clearly has become their most important midfielder. Don't forget about Luke Parker, though. I mean, he's just so incredibly consistent. We tend to not mention him, but he and Mills are critical. But I think Rowbottom has become critical for them as well, particularly against a physically strong side like Geelong. Do you agree? I do, and I've got a question back up at you. Given the depth of the Geelong midfield and the roles that Atkins, Cameron Guthrie, uh, Blixarves plays, um, it, it's conceivable that Geelong, I don't think I'd do it, but it's conceivable that Geelong could start a grand final with Selwood and Dangerfield out of the centre square. Mm. Um, a question without notice, who does Rowbottom go for? He has had a specific targeted player every time. I don't think 
Geelong will allow him to lock into someone like that, Rowan. It's um, because Atkins will probably go to a Warner or a Parker, like it, he did last week. It's a really good question because Dangerfield last week has played clearly his best game of the season and was on fire early with those two first quarter goals, won a number of clearances, won a lot of the ball. So whilst it would be clever to start him outside the square, you got to weigh that up against, or Chris Scott weighs that up against, you know, getting a, the best possible start to a grand final. I'd be going with the latter, to be honest. Yes, it would be tactical chicanery to start him in the forward pocket or something, but I'd be starting him out of the square. Yeah. And in that case, you'd think, wouldn't you, row bottom probably goes to him. Absolutely. Great answer to my question. Um, as I said, it's conceivable, given Geelong's improvement and the depth, that these things could happen. And I'm telling you what, at stages of this game, Dangerfield will be at full forward alongside Hawkins and Selwood would be in the middle. Who would have thought, Rowan, we would be mentioning a starting centre square in a grand final and also and, and not have the captain in there? I tell you what, uh, tactical, what did you call it? Tactical chicanery. Well, it could be tactical stupidity (laughs) because you toss the coin. uh, Joel Selwood would be going to Chris Scott and saying, mate, you know that centre square? Um, I'll be starting in there. I'll get this going. And the danger field scenario is critical, Rowan. So I'm with you. It's row bottom to danger field. Geelong's got form on this one. I I love these little historical um, (laughs) analogies. But you made me think back to... The 1989 first semi-final between Geelong and Melbourne. Geelong had been smashed in the qualifying final by Essendon. Blighty, Malcolm Blight, looking for a bit of a tactical leverage, started his captain, Mark Bairstow, and Paul Couch on the interchange bench. They both came on within about a minute, but they started on the bench. And I can remember the absolute frenzy that erupted when everyone saw those two players running to the bench. I don't think we'll see them starting off the ground, but um, it's a real interesting one to consider. Okay, so looking at the respective strength of both midfield divisions, the possibilities, the flexibility, uh, who gets your nod there in terms of the better group? Right, it's 1 0 to Geelong at the moment. I'm going to call this a draw, Rowan. The midfield yep. is a draw. So yep. uh, that's zero each. I think they're flexible. Mills can go back. Rowbottom has a job. McInerney improved. Parker can go forward. Heaney can go in the midfield. Papley, and it's exactly the same. Um, even Jeremy Cameron can go in the midfield. So I'm unashamedly going to say this is uh, this is all square in the midfield. Evenly matched, both a great combination of tacking flair, and also they've got Cameron Guthrie and Atkins that, if required, can do lockdown roles, and so can Sydney. All right, so if we're splitting the points there and we award a point for a win in a, in an area of the ground, the current score is Geelong 1.5, Sydney 0.5. Correct, okay. Rowan. That's good. All right. I'm so happy this with that. So this preview will be decided by the remaining area of the ground, which is the Geelong forward line up against Sydney's defence. Just before you give us the rundown there, I'll just repeat those numbers. Uh, Geelong ranked third for points scored um, and Sydney ranked fourth for fewest points conceded. So we have statistically the third best offense in the AFL up against the fourth best defense. Uh, Sydney's defense, I would argue pretty much, uh, well, a team-based, a team-based 
defence more than a one-on-one defence. But how do you see this part of the ground? Well, I think you've summed it up beautifully. Um, I'll go with Sydney before. Robbie Fox, right? He's been delisted. You know, he's been delisted by Sydney. You know, he came from Burnie in Tasmania. Paddy McCartan's history has been well-documented. Rampy was a rookie. Jake Lloyd. Blakey was a father-son. Um, Oliver Florent used to be an attacking wingman. Um, it, it's it's not a household name. There was an article written on them as the no-name defence. It just shows you how much team defence um, is so important. We've seen Tom McCartan exposed at times and had big numbers kick, kicked on him. Um, uh, I'll say to you, Rowan, just quick one to you, who plays on, I know who plays on Hawkins, and I, I think Fox will go to Stengel, mm. has to go to Stengel, or he Rampy to Rowan. Um, Tom McCartan can start on Hawkins. Lloyd can pick up a Myers or a Holmes. I don't think Paddy McCartan, well, I'm pretty confident Paddy McCartan cannot play on Jeremy Cameron as a running centre-half back Rowan to keep up with him. Who plays on Jeremy Cameron? Well, I'd, I'd, yeah, this is the issue for Sydney. I'd switch them, to be honest. I think I'd have Paddy on Hawkins and Tom on Cameron. I, I, and, and the reason you've said that, uh, we're both not sure. I, I don't think Paddy's got a big tank. No, but I Are think... We let, yeah, can we, we say we, that? We, yeah, which is but why... Tom I, might have. Yeah, but that's why I'd have... So that's why I'd have Tom on Cameron and Paddy on Hawkins because you think Cameron's going to cover more territory than Hawkins, wouldn't you? Oh, mate. But the one I like, can Robbie Fox is an aerobic animal. Hang right? on, can you answer my question first? I am. Okay, sorry. What, what was your question? Well, my question was, well, aren't we, aren't by saying that, we expect Cameron to cover more territory than Hawkins, don't we? So if Paddy doesn't have as big a tank as Tom. Yeah. Doesn't Tom play on Cameron and Paddy plays on Hawkins? And my answer to that is Robbie Fox is the best running player in Sydney's team. A huge endurance, but Rowan, he's six foot one up against six foot five. Yep. We saw Collingwood err by going with the Maynard Franklin matchup this time. But what I do know, Fox can keep up with Cameron. Yeah. Can he can he negate his marking strength? Mm. Because he can negate his running. Oh, intriguing, mate, because I also initially had Fox because of his negating skills on Tyson Stengel 3. Yeah. Yeah, Tyson Stengel 3. Very good, yes. Of course, now nine times Stengel has so kicked three goals. So you'd swap them, Rowan. You'd yep. swap them. That's yep. fine. Um, and I'd go with Fox, I think, because, um, gee, Jeremy Cameron can run, Rowan. Yeah. And at the other end of the ground, as we said, we're speaking about Franklin and Cameron, aren't we? Yeah. Like Lance is 33 or 32 or whatever he is, but he can seriously run. Okay. I, I'm going to get you okay. to sort of give us who's ahead here in a sec. I, I, my contribution is simply this, that I had in my head that that round two win by Sydney was a comprehensive win. But I think it was a little bit misleading, and I think the conversion that night gives you an insight into why it was misleading. Geelong kicked 10-17. I think the odds are uh, this time they get hit the scoreboard better than they did in that game. And also the inside 50 count. They had 65 inside Ooh. 50s. If yeah. they get that much, 
on a ground bigger than the SCG, like the MCG, and there's anything like decent delivery to Hawkins, Cameron, etc., this is where they win the game for mine. I just cannot see Sydney's defence holding that Geelong forward set up. Um, and that's where I think the Cats will win it. But you tell us who you think comes out on top in this part of the ground. Greater depth again for uh, for the Geelong side uh, with the capacity to put Dangerfield down there. Alongside Rowan's a hard matchup. Like Rampy to Rowan, probably. You've got Cameron, you've got Hawkins, you've got Stengel. The dangerous Myers that at close and homes, they're, they're terrific players. This is a workman. This backline has been terrific, but it's supported by a fantastic team defence structure by the Sydney Swans. The numbers you give me are concerning, Rowan. 10, 17, 60 inside 50s. If those numbers equate to the Melbourne cricket ground, I feel that uh, the, the Geelong forward line has the advantage, definitely, over the Sydney back line. So it's a 1-0 to uh, Geelong on the, uh, in the three areas. So that's what? 2.5 to 0.5. Correct. In, in the three zones. So we are saying, uh, or you are saying basically, and I do agree with you, that Geelong wins at either end of the ground and uh, at least breaks even in midfield, which adds up to, uh, well, uh, we don't know how convincing, but it adds up to a decisive enough Geelong win. And let's get to the tips. That's pretty much how I see it. Look, th this is the best side of the year. They, Oh, sorry, you got one more thing you want to say on the structure here? No, just the youth run of both yep. teams. Yep. It, will, will that be a factor? Sydney, McCartan, Blakey's pretty young. Stevens, McInerney finding his way. Rowan, McDonald finding his way. Wart, Warner emerging. Goulden, very young. But at the other side of the scale, uh, DeConning, Atkins emerging, Close Myers home, Stengel and Henry. Yep. Are all what you would call emerging players. So um, it, it will come down to also which young players can maintain their composure in a grand final. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And having said that, I think that if all those young players were to freeze under the spotlight, I think that would be of greater consequence to Sydney than Geelong because I think Geelong's experienced players are greater in number and I think they would pick up the slack. Whereas I think if Sydney's young guns all uh, get stage fright, they're in a lot of trouble. Can I ask you a question, Rowan? You can. Seeing we're previewing this game. Yes. Uh, your boy, like he's he's had his name changed. Um, my boy Holmes. Um, <laughs> you 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 were pretty emphatic about Parfit, Rowan. Can you state the case for the experienced Menangola and also the very important O'Connor that can play half back and that can play tag through the midfield. But you just went Parfit straight off the top of your head. Yeah, oh, I'm just on on the basis of pace and run, and I okay. think that's yep. I think that's what Holmes has brought to Geelong. And people forget people will only ever think about that in in an offensive sense. But I think um, you know Max, one of Max's great assets for the Cats this year has been his defensive pressure that he exerts via tackling. It doesn't mean he's not a physical player. It doesn't mean he, he crunches guys in tackles. But putting that uh, physical heat on the player with the ball means that their delivery is rushed. 
and it makes it easier for the Geelong defence to, you know, pick off the crumbs and zone off and, and do what they do so well. So that's been pivotal for them. And I think if Holmes doesn't come up, Parfit is the most obvious like for like. And I, I also think just in his own right, he's a pretty good player. And I, I felt like he was proving important for the Cats before he got injured. And that's really as much as anything what disturbed his season. So, yeah, look, no offence to Menegola or Iconor, but I'd have Parfit ahead of them, yeah. Thanks, mate. So in summary, I've got... Um, like. Uh, I think it's um, an intriguing game. They're both going to bring great strengths. The facts and figures are interesting. Uh, the matchups are intriguing. The tactics are going to be so critical. But in summary, Rowan, because of the way we've summarised this game, I'm going for Geelong to finish the game really strongly. Last week concerned me, the way Collingwood ran over the top of Sydney. I think Geelong have the capacity to play four consistent quarters where Sydney will have their ups and downs. It's Geelong by 21 points. And because of why, uh, the way we discussed it, I'm going with Jeremy Cameron as the Norm Smith medalist. All right. Uh, well, we've both got pretty similar tips here as well. I, I agree with everything you say there. I'm going for a slightly longer margin. Um, wow. Interesting. Well, I, I don't think it'll be a blowout, but I'm going for Geelong to win this one by 28 points, just gradually working their way mm. on top. Uh, and I'm thinking more. I'm thinking similarly with the Norm Smith Medal, except I'm not going for Jeremy Cameron. I'm going for Tom Hawkins. Uh, I think he almost won the last Grand Final. Oh, not the last one. Sorry, the last Premiership Geelong one. He almost was responsible for winning that for them. I think he's going to really make some hay while the sun shines. Unfortunately, it doesn't sound like the sun's going to be shining. It's going to be, could be a pretty crappy day, which actually could be at work in Geelong's advantage as well. I think Hawkins can win the Norm Smith medal here with a four or five goal haul, which in a grand final you'd think will always be decisive. So he's my tip for Norm Smith medal. Fair point. There it is. There is our grand final preview. Uh, hopefully that gives you some decent insight into how the most important game of the AFL season is going to unfold. Uh, thanks to your company once again on this very busy grand final show. Thank you to our wonderful podcasting partners, Palmerbet. And uh, remember, you get tackle-busting benefits all AFL season. Thanks to Palmerbet. Always remember, of course, to... Gamble responsibly. If you want to support us financially, and we'd love you to, um, you can go to the ACAST support page and you find a link in the show description wherever you are listening to this podcast. Uh, and while you're at it, why not become an official Footyology patron? There are links to Patreon, a wonderful platform supporting independent media writing and publishing uh, those links are all over the Footyology website, footyology.com.au. Click on Footyology for uh, quality content, not clickbait in uh, all manner of things. Pretty football heavy at this time of the year, obviously, but some great reading there. You'll see this podcast there, a great grand final preview coming, which Shane Hope will be writing over the next 24 hours or so. We've got an interesting thing from Tom Thomas about the first time these teams met, not the last time these teams met. So we're going all the way back to 1897. Uh, my James Heard column is up there if you haven't seen that. So plenty of great quality reading at Footyology. 
uh, become an official footyology patron for seven dollars Australian per month, and it really does make a difference to us sustaining this little operation. Thanks to your company, uh, fingers crossed we have a grand final befitting what a wonderful season. This has been, uh, and just quickly, Robert, this has been an outstanding season, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah, no, this is, um, it's it's great to watch the games. And uh, I, I think you're right. It is a befitting and uh, it, it will be a good game. I can't see, uh, I'm concerned about the weather. Uh, you're quite right. Dower, um, Geelong train in these conditions. It's tough. Um yeah, sensational year of footy, Rowan, and I'll leave you with one thought. What's that? Goal kickers, Papley or Stengel? Yes, okay. Well, it might come down to those small forwards. Let's see which one prevails and which side prevails. Have a great grand final, everyone. Yep. We will be back to review it uh, in graphic and fulsome detail after the game. We'll see you then. <laughs>